you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Win Win Podcast. Today is a lot of fun. We speak to someone who I have seen around the product space for a while now, and that's Fawn Chu, who is a senior product manager at LinkedIn. Fawn has worked at Spotify, Sesame Street, and Amazon in various product roles and has also given a TED Talk, which has garnered millions of views, and I highly recommend you check out. Our conversation today was really varied and fascinating as we touched upon the applicable uses of AI in creating personalized feeds and when AI actually doesn't work too. We discussed actionable ways that executives and company leadership can contribute to closing the gender gap and addressing diversity and racial issues in the workplace, which is more relevant than ever as we see companies like Basecamp take really opposite stances on social justice and conversations around equity, diversity and inclusion and politics in the workplace. Like me, Fawn is really passionate about education, and so we also talk about her trajectory of working with kids' education-geared products, and what's it like to develop a product where the end consumer is a child. I hope that you enjoy today's chat and the remaining few episodes of this season. We have some incredible guests coming up from Poshmark and my own company, City, and we are already deep in filming season three content too and continuously bringing you the most relevant innovation content. If you're interested in getting involved with women in innovation, please do reach out and or check out our site, www.womenininnovation.co, which has a join us section where you can find new roles and our most recent ambassador opportunities for those passionate about innovation and closing the gender gap in innovation. Without further ado, here is Fawn. Hi, Fawn. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Really, the pleasure is all mine. We've been in touch for just a few months now, and it's really exciting to have you here. So as you may know, on this podcast, we talk to so many people whose title has the word innovation in it. And whether that's chief innovation officer or an innovation consultancy CEO and so many others, in this season of the podcast, I've actually brought on a ton of product people because the product is often the innovation in a company, similarly to the way that a brand can be the innovation. So when you think about your career, would you say that innovation is a fundamental skill or a part of your role? Yeah, I think when I think about my career, definitely innovation is so fundamental to a lot of jobs I've had. My career has been pretty messy. I've had three career switches, have taken a year-long sabbatical, and have done so many different side projects. And even having worked for over 10 years now, I am still figuring out my path and my career. And I would say every part of that innovation played a pretty big role. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, you've really done product across so many different industries, uh, you know, whether it's Sesame Street or Amazon's Audible to Mm -hmm. Spotify, and now as a senior product manager at LinkedIn. So what was your specific entryway into the product space? I kind of stumbled upon the product role. I joined Sesame Workshop as a product development manager, and that was probably my first experience working product. And when I was there, I helped launch a lot of the games and apps that they were creating for kids. And that kind of got my hand dirty in creating products. I think it's such a unique thing to be working on, especially in your first product role on a product that serves kids. So obviously throughout your career, you've worked on products that have served other audiences. So what was it like to work on a product that where the end consumer is actually kids? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I am really glad that my first experience as a product manager were for kids because kids are so unpredictable and it really humbles <laughs> you as a product manager because you can think of solutions and features that are just really great from an adult perspective. But as soon as you put it into user testing, the kids will prove you wrong. So I think that has been the really great first product manager experience for me so that I always learn to always listen to the users and always do a lot of user testing and never assume that I know the solution. So although this was your first technical product role, you've had tons of opportunities throughout your career to kind of contribute and dabble in education. I was watching your TED talk about DIY projects for kid engineers, and something that you said is that actually a creative project can teach kids and people about engineering. Tell me more about how you discovered that and and whether you still look back on that TED talk and feel like it stands true. The TED Talk definitely still stands true. Um, a lot of things I said in the TED Talk or I found out through the project I was involved in is that traditionally people think engineering or learning to coding as something that's very boring and only catered to a specific category of people. But by teaching people through a creative project, it actually attracted a lot more people who are not interested in this topic before. And um, I stumbled upon that project by accident. I was just going into a hackathon for fun because I love doing a lot of side projects, even outside of work. And one of the projects I created um, that weekend was a physical version of Flappy Bird. I remember that week, the Flappy Bird mobile game was just being taken off the app store. Worst day of my life, like literally. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it would be so fun to actually create a physical version of it that can never be taken off the app store. Um, So I created a prototype and put a video of the demo on YouTube and it went viral. Like over a few days, it had millions of views. And what I thought was interesting was that in the comment section, a lot of people asked me how it was made because they wanted to make their own version of it. So that kind of gave me the idea of like, maybe I can leverage this as a way to teach people how to learn to code and engineer and actually create their own game in a box. I actually raised money on Kickstarter and then was able to host workshops for high school girls and teach them how to make their own game in the box. And through that process, I really saw a lot of learning happening specifically in this area. 
And we'll talk so much about, you know, women and women in innovation and women in STEM. But uh, my older brother, Michael, he teaches or he used to teach in University of Toronto. He was a TA uh, in computer science. And he said to me, first of all, there are so few girls in this class. And then he'd tell me that even the girls that came, they would make comments about how how stupid they felt and how they, Mm. you know, would say, I definitely can't do this. Is that something that you came across, this inherent bias that the girls you taught already had about themselves? I would say that's true. And not only the girls, but anyone who's not familiar with technology or coding feel this topic is very intimidating. And I think that's true with all of us, you know, in doing anything in a subject that we're not familiar with. It is always pretty intimidating at first. So it's really important to have that first win so that you can feel confident about doing things in that in this area more and more and gaining confidence over time. Yeah, and your own background is so strong in education. Your master's is in education. So how did you kind of decide to go from education into the product space? Yeah, when I studied education for my... I actually went into education for my master's degree. And one of the areas I focused on was education technology. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in this area because I saw just through a product and through technology, you can really scale education and make it more accessible to so many people. And that's one of the main reasons why I thought working as a product manager in the education industry would just be something that really aligned with my value and my passion. And that's how I started. And even though now I no longer work in the education industry, but I still see the power of technology, how it's able to scale and bring a lot of access and equity to so many people. Yeah, and I also think that at at this point, a lot of the bridges between women and women in STEM and innovation is education. So what are some ways that you think that you can actually bring women to get over that initial fear that you discussed into saying, you know what, screw this, I'm going to learn this thing, or I'm going to explore this technology thing? Yeah, I think what I found most intimidating for people is that they always think there has there is already one definition of success in this field or in this industry or in a particular role, whether that be software engineering or a product manager. But I think what we need to do more is showcase that there are diverse a pretty diverse path towards success in the technology industry, whether you work in the tech industry or you're doing research in this industry. And the only way to do that is by showcasing, you know, more, more success stories from women, also creating our own path in this industry. For example, by combining technology with something that we are interested in, like instilling technology in um, fashion or in other industry that that maybe we already have an advantage at. I think that's one way to introduce that. Yeah. And throughout your own career, as you mentioned, you switched a few different companies and you also had a fundamental switch between education and technology. What have been the different focuses between your three uh, primary product roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first product role, as I mentioned, I wanted to uh, working at tech. Um, and that's how I started working at Sesame Street. When I thought about my next career switch, um, it has been about two and a half years at Sesame Workshop. 
I felt like I reached a pretty important milestone in my career by having launched several products at Sesame Workshop. Up until this point, I've been mainly focusing on children's education, and I learned about an opportunity to also work on adult education at Audible, and that's kind of what drew me. It's through personal growth in a new areas I haven't worked at,、um, but also still working in this in in this industry that I've been very interested in. That's what prompted me to move to Audible. After Audible, I actually took a year off and did a lot of these passion projects, including the TED Talk that you might have seen. But after that, I wanted—I really wanted to get back to product. And at that time, I actually became more open-minded to one、mm. wanting to learn about what is working as a product manager like in other、uh, industries. And that's when I joined Spotify. And then my next career switch is at LinkedIn. And when I switched to LinkedIn, one of the things I really wanted to learn is how is working product different at a major tech company. And also, I wanted to gain some new skills such as optimization and machine learning, which I got a lot of exposure of in my current job. Yeah, and I think something else that's really interesting is this notion that you, like you said, you didn't do things entirely the traditional way. So、mm-hmm. when you took this sabbatical and you were out there looking for your job for your next adventure, was there a lot of judgment or was there a lot of positive reactions to the fact that you went about doing this? It's been quite a few years since I took the sabbatical, but I think even until even this day, it's still quite non-traditional to take a year off. And a lot of people, you know, especially during the pandemic, whether they have voluntarily become unemployed or involuntarily, I think it's still a very scary thought for people.、Um, but from my own experience, it has been a year of probably one of the. Strongest personal growth because I was really able to do a lot of passion projects that I've been always interested in but didn't have time for. There were definitely a lot of questions, especially if you are with family and friends who, you know, have a very traditional sense of success and and also traditional sense of employment and stability in your life. There will be a lot of questions, and even as I was coming back from my sabbatical and looking for a new job again, there were a lot of questions from employers. But I also think that's a great filter because for the companies that had questioned why you took a year off, they probably aren't aligned with what I'm interested in、uh, because they didn't really value that time off as actually a value add for their company as a new experience that their employee can bring. Yeah, and something I wonder about is obviously you know you went from a product role to a different product role, but so many people struggle getting into innovation or into product. And you mentioned that you did a variety of passion projects. I'm sure、mm-hmm. you spoke about those passion projects, you know, when you got back into、uh, working. But do you see value for people to take on stretch projects or、uh, creative endeavors in order to help them grow and、uh, switch into a product role potentially? Yeah, the product manager profession is very non-traditional. I think if you talk with anyone, I've talked with many people who wants to get into product management, and when they talk to me, how I got into product manager will be very different than how the next person will get into product management. So I think having that very diverse experience always helps、um, because. Product manager is someone who wears many hats, and the more experience you have, and the more skill sets you have, I think it only adds value to the to the role itself. Also, from 
the perspective innovation, I think innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum, and also it doesn't happen on an individual level. It's a cross pollination between all your past experiences and skill sets. So the more experiences you have, I think it only helps. It's tough because it's similar with innovation consulting. I spoke to Alfia, who is our co-founder at Win Women in Innovation, and she was at some of the most prestigious innovation consultancies, and she has an incredible innovation uh, role today. And she was saying that it's it's still very much a black box, and I think product management is the same. Something that you mentioned earlier was this notion of culture and and you know having a filter for the roles when you were coming back and were questioning your non-traditional yeah. path. Something I read about was uh, Ken Norton discussing product culture fit, right? So there are companies that value data above all, companies that value design above all, like Airbnb and Apple. Um, are you familiar with this concept? And do you believe that there are certain product cultures that will enable somebody to thrive more because of their product culture? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it really also different person by person. For example, a company's culture might be a great fit for me, but it might not be a fit for the next person. So I really encourage anyone who's looking for the next role or looking for, you know, or looking to build that culture within their own company, really examine, you know, what is core to their company and also what is core to themselves so that they can find that match. For me, what I've always valued the most in a company's culture is having psychological safety and having a flat culture where people aren't afraid to kind of voice their opinions or afraid to fail. I think it's under those uh, conditions and environment where innovation can really happen. And, you know, with innovation, there always comes failure. So I think that is really critical. Being at all these different companies, you, of course, experience different cultures. So what advice would you have for somebody if they go into a company, they're really excited about all the innovative things that they're doing, but then they get there and suddenly they don't see culture, cultural innovation or a psychological safety? Mm. Uh, what would you recommend at that point? Yeah, I, will, I have a few recommendations if this happens. For example, I will first ask myself, is this something I can change? And also, is this a deal breaker for me? So the culture cannot be a fit in so many levels. But if it's a must have for you, I think you have to see, you know, is this something you can change, whether it's changing team or changing roles that might make the job fits with your value more. Um, if it's something you can't change, um, and if it's definitely a deal breaker, for example, I think some deal breaker is, you know, if there is no psychological safety, if it's a toxic work environment, I would not waste your time and I would try to get out as soon as possible because a lot of times people are afraid having, you know, not have stayed at a job for a year. But I think it's an even larger setback on your career and potentially even on your mental health if you stay in a company that doesn't align with your value. You know, having psychological safety is for sure not only just one of the best things that you can have for a culture of a company, but as you mentioned, to actually enable innovation. And I think when you think about culture and the way that culture as a whole has changed and, and what we talk about it is is social media. Social media has played such a vital role in our lives, and there have been tons of debates about the negative consequences of this, even on a federal level. Mm. You, of course, work at a professional social media 
media company that is owned by Microsoft. But what is it about the space that actually excites you about it? And how do you, you know, grapple with those challenges that come along with being in it too? It has been a really interesting experience working at LinkedIn because it is um, the first time I've worked at a social network, and it's so different than a lot of roles I played in b- before. What's really interesting about this space is that I feel in a social network, and especially at LinkedIn, I see a lot of learning being very decentralized. So instead of learning about news about your industry, you're actually learning about. What's happening in your industry or other companies through your network? What really excites me is that information are now being more accessible, and anyone who can create an account and have access to this information or have access to a job that someone has posted on LinkedIn. So I guess what I was thinking about when you brought that up is actually this notion of the feed, and that's something that you work on as a part of your role. So your team, if, correct me if I'm butchering that, does uh, the AI of the actual feed, and so you focus on optimizing the feed to serve your users and communities. So, you know, before we get into what that actually means, I'm sure you've heard the term AI thrown around as a buzzword in every <laughs> tech and non-tech publication. So. What value and potential do you see in using this technology to actually make our lives better and actually make a difference? Yeah, I think where AI really thrives is when it is a task that is just impossible for a human to do because it's so tedious. For example, it's very easy for your feed to show you trending content that everyone. Either in your network or everyone in your world is interested in seeing, but it's very difficult to have a human to actually personalize your feed just for you, right? If it's actually a human doing that, there needs to be a concierge who understand all your interests and all your needs, and it really like sift through thousands of articles and really bring the update to you. But AI does a really good job because it does understand you based on your past viewing behavior, who you're connected to. Uh, who you are as a person, what's your career, and what you're interested in. So AI does a really good job of personalizing content of that's most interesting to you. Yeah, and it, it's super interesting because I feel like we started this conversation with this, you know, discussion around creativity and the role of creativity, and I think. I personally believe that creativity is going to be one of these jobs that you can't truly outsource to AI because it still has that human touch. Do you agree with that? And, and do you think there are any other kind of problems that maybe AI can't solve for? I completely agree with that, and that's why I believe human creativity is going to be the most valuable asset in the future. And we already see that, you know, even with the advance of technology. Content creators now have you know so much more opportunity to showcase their content. Technology did not replace content creation, but it only empowered them. So I think we will just see that more and more in the future, and see creators to be see creators being even more empowered. Another area I think where AI does not do a wonderful job is maybe the the implicit biases that might be created by AI. AI make decisions based on existing data, and if that data is biased, or if the behavior done by a specific person is biased, 
Uh, it doesn't correct that.、Uh, it doesn't educate the person. It kind of leans into the particular behavior or particular data. So I think we do need to have more human supervision as well as regulations. How AI can feed into the biases that might already exist in our society. And you yourself come from a diverse background and are actually on those teams that are creating AI, working with AI in the product space. So, how have you seen that play out as far as you know bringing up those conversations to any of the teams that you've worked with in the past? We actually hear a lot of community members and LinkedIn members bring these problems up to us、um, about certain biases in our either our personalization. Algorithm or our feature itself that might not be friendly towards a particular group of people. Whether it's maybe they believe certain algorithm might be biased, or it could be that you know certain features are not the most accessible to 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 everyone. And we treat that like any user problem that we see, and see how we can, as product managers, how we can create solutions to solve these problems. Implicit bias in algorithms in our features are definitely something that we always keep in mind. And I think there have been multiple multiple teams in our organization are working very hard in solving these problems. Yeah, and I think to, to our conversation about the challenges, but also the exciting parts around social media and you know the power of the actual users, the people that are using it.、Um, another product I saw you worked on in your career was, was actually sharing Spotify songs and music to Instagram Stories, which is a really exciting way to combine you know social media along with music and sound.、Mm -hmm. So, what was the process behind bringing that to life, and what were some of the challenges? That came up as a result of launching that feature. Yeah, that feature came about first through some observation we my team has seen through just sharing behaviors of people. Before we created this feature, we saw a lot of people taking screenshots of their Spotify playlist and then posting it on Twitter, on Instagram Stories, on all these different social media platforms. So we thought about how we can actually make this. Uh, how we can make this experience more frictionless for people, and that's how this、uh, feature actually came about. And when we actually created the feature, we went into a partnership with Instagram, and there are definitely a lot of challenges working with product team that's on a different company, and a lot of times. We have somewhat conflicting motivations. For example, Spotify. Our goal is to have people discover those songs on Instagram and come back to Spotify. And Instagram probably wants their users to stay on Instagram as long as they can. So totally. Those, so、um, that's where some challenges can happen. And I think it's really about working with our partners and understand our. And understand where our separate goals are, and also where our mutual goals are. And I think where our mutual goals are is really to allow people to share content where they want. And I think once we establish our common goal, it was really easy to come to a solution that benefited both users. That's definitely one of the challenges. Is just like working with a team that has different motivations.、Um, another challenge, with, especially in music industry, is all the legal and licensing and music label hurdles that we had to jump through to actually make this product come to life. And I think again, very similarly, it's about you know how do you work through these problems and understand what the challenges are, and figuring out a solution that will actually allow you to launch a product. And I think even now, working at LinkedIn, LinkedIn is such a B two B heavy 
product that I think it's probably taking you back a little bit to those partnership days. But something I did want to ask about LinkedIn is it's such a successful platform. Anybody who has heard me speak ever knows that I'm always like the LinkedIn ambassador. And I talk about how it changed my life. I got my first internship on LinkedIn. I met so many incredible people through LinkedIn. But I do think that fundamentally, it's a platform that's been around for so many years. So it's obviously super ripe for disruption. So how do you think that LinkedIn can be disrupted or reinvented from within? Yeah, I think it's this is definitely a challenge with any company that has been around the block for a while is that it's hard for people to disrupt themselves, right? After all, mm-hmm. if you already have a great product and if you're already the main player in that market, it's very hard to disrupt what this really great thing that you already have. Mm-hmm. I think one way to really still focus on innovation in this environment is looking at new opportunities or new users that you're not currently serving so that you're not necessarily cannibalizing your current business, but you are still looking after a new opportunity. And sometimes I think even having a separate innovation group or having a separate product group that can operate outside of the main product can really help stir up innovation and give you new ideas of how to disrupt yourself. Yeah, I I definitely see that. And and I do think it's really hard. I mean, it's no secret. I work at a 200-year-old bank, and it's very, very hard to do it from the inside. So, you know, we we tend to bring in people from the outside in, or we look to the outside, and and it's still still a challenge. You, You know, one of the other challenges that I'm sure that you're facing is being a minority in this large corporation, not only being a woman, but being an Asian woman, and especially now in this very, very challenging time to be an Asian woman. How do you think that it's affected your career and how have you navigated that? So working in the technology industry, Asians and Asian Americans have a pretty big presence. But on the leadership level, um, that's not the same story. I think it has been challenging because there are certain biases towards Asians. I remember I took an improv class uh, recently and one uh, we did an exercise where we talked about our assumptions about each other before we anyone even met each other. And one of the things people said is like, oh, she's probably good at math um, or she probably <laughs> did very well in school. And I think these kind of biases might also fall into workplaces too of the roles you play, the kind of um, work ethics you have and um, and whether you have leadership skills or not. So I think it was definitely very hard being an Asian American uh, today in tech, given the most recent API hate even that has been going on in our society. What has been helpful is when a company's leadership has been outspoken about their stance on this subject, um, especially when their workforce is made up of so many people from the API community. Um, I think what companies can do more is through both from the top where they are creating more opportunities, not just for the API community, but for also the BIPOC community, for, you know, other communities, LGBTQ community, or 
any group that has been really underrepresented to create a path and opportunity for them to actually rise on the top. On a more holistic level, there should definitely be more training, whether it's for leadership to managers or to employees to help them understand any implicit biases they might have for groups who are underrepresented or who are minorities, who has been uh, victims of prejudice or biases. Um, so I think that's something that companies should really focus on to make sure that their workforce is healthy and diverse um, and can contribute to the company's goal. It's interesting that you brought up this notion of leadership, right? Because I, I do think that when we talk about traditional leadership skills, they are based off of people who have previously been leaders, right? And, and in this case, it's typically white people and <laughs> white males specifically. So how can you even be judged if you're a good leader when, the, when those skills aren't based on things that may be more inherent to you or, mm-hmm. or maybe cultural to you, right? Like I'm Middle Eastern, so I'm very, very direct. And, and maybe that, that's something that isn't considered a leadership skill for a woman trying to attain mm-hmm. leadership, right? So yeah, yeah all, all really interesting things. So before I let you go, I'd love to ask you one more innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? <laughs> that's, that's a tough question. Yeah, I, I'll first maybe answer for myself. I feel that's an easier question. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think one month from now, you know, I like to see myself continuously to, you know, stay true to my product principles to always to create solutions that are user centric and actually solving real user problems. And that's something I always want to continue to do in my job. In terms of one year from now, I will ideally like to see a lot of more personal growth, both in terms of my product management skills, as well as, you know, in my outside of my professional life. Ideally, we we are out of this pandemic and we can, you know, have more have more collaboration together and, you know, have more innovation together, either, you know, as part of our work or outside of our work. And 10 years from now, um, I hope I'm actually on a different career path because I think that's something that should be encouraged. I think some it's still a little bit looked look down upon these days, but I would like to really see in the world where people are really encouraged to take on a new path to really reset themselves every 10 years and then to pursue something new and learn something new. Um, in terms of my industry, yeah, I think the tech industry is uh, such a big topic to talk about. So one month from now, I'm not sure what will ch- what will have changed that much. But I think if I say one year or ten year from now, I think from a from what we we're just talking about, I I definitely hope that it is more diverse that we can see more underrepresented groups um, on the leadership table. And I also want to see that um, the tech industry, you know, become something, uh, become a career field that is more accessible to people, Um, you know, people from all sorts of background, uh, career changers, anyone um, who might be interested in starting a new career, career that they can just transition into tech, the technology industry. I think currently the tech industry can be viewed by our society as not doing great, a little a little bit of tone deaf or out of touch with the rest of the society. And I really hope the tech industry continue to evolve so that it's not only 
making profit for company, but also bring more value to society, and that people can really see a change in their lives by the benefit that tech can bring to them. I love that, and I I completely agree. And it's one of the many reasons why I stick around, and I'm so excited to be in the tech industry too. Thank you so so much, Fawn, for joining us today on the Win Win Podcast.、Uh, thank you so much for having me.、It、has been so much fun. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womeninnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.